Hi folks, welcome back to Bibliology. I'm your host Patrick Hamilton and on today's show I'm speaking with Dr. J. Richard Middleton, professor at Northeastern Seminary and author of the upcoming book Abraham's Silence, The Binding of Isaac, The Suffering of Job and How to Talk Back to God. And this will be the topic of this discussion. Dr. Middleton has a PhD in theology from the Institute of Christian Studies in Amsterdam and he's also done postgraduate research in Old Testament religious studies and philosophy. He is the author of over six books and numerous journal articles. He is also currently president of the Canadian Society of Biblical Studies. Now, as I said, in this conversation, I got to speak to Dr. Millicent about his upcoming book, which proposes a fresh way of interpreting one of the strangest and most perplexing stories in the Bible, namely the binding of Isaac. Uh, Dr. Millicent will give a brief summary of this story, but If you're not at all familiar with it, I'd recommend that you read Genesis chapter 22, just to familiarize yourself for the sake of the conversation. If you're interested in pre-ordering Dr. Middleton's book, I've linked it below in the description. With that said, on to the conversation. Hello, Dr. Middleton. Welcome to the show. Really nice to be here. I'm going to start with um, a set of brief fun questions you know just to establish what you're what you're like in uh your everyday life uh what sort of human being you are i think the the most noteworthy thing is you're the only jamaican bible scholar i've ever heard of so i'm I'm wondering do you consider yourself to be culturally jamaican as well and like do you have you know your your caribbean nights and uh do you speak to your family members in jamaican creole and all that stuff or is that have you embraced america at this point in your life um, well, you see, when I'm in Jamaica, this is the way I talk, but I can't talk this way up in America, you know. So yeah. Of course, I'm, I'm, I'm fundamentally, my identity is Jamaican. But I immigrated to Canada, and then I immigrated to America. So my wife and I, we call ourselves Jamaicadians. Okay. We've got a hybrid identity, but um, we, you know, we do Jamaican food as well as other kinds of food. Yeah, and I listen to primarily reggae music. <laughs> All right. Okay. So you're a Bob Marley fan and all that, yeah. Bob Marley, yeah. I've, I've yeah. written on Bob Marley. You know. All right. Okay. Interesting. That was kind of interesting to do. Yeah. Yeah. And so, if you weren't a professor uh, in Bible related stuff and all that, what would you have done on a full time basis? Do you think? So that's a very difficult question because I know what I would like to have done, but I'm not sure I have the talent to do it. When I was in high school, I was an artist, a visual artist. And it's pretty good, but not fantastic. And I was directed towards seminary by my uh, pastor. But um, the other thing I've always loved is I love music. And I've played guitar for many years. I just don't have a very good ear for music. And I have very um, short, stubby fingers that aren't good for playing the guitar. I can't reach very far. So I have some physical limitations, but I would love to be a musician, primarily um, a visual artist, second, if, if I had the chance to do that but it didn't work out that way so are you the guy who's belting out the belting out with a loud voice on on sunday mornings pre-pandemic of course because of my my, my fingers work I'm, I'm much better at rhythm in fact every band i've played in i'm playing a lot of worship bands for church every band i've played in i have kept the beat not the drum so i okay. think i should have been a drummer actually because i can do rhythm very well and syncopation and so forth and i'll play and and sing along to myself but i know my singing doesn't sound very good Okay, yeah, you're uh, you're speaking to a to a fellow musician anyway, so I definitely I I understand the the love for music anyway. Um, so obviously today we're going to be talking about 
um, one of the strangest stories in the Bible. Well, I, I think anyway, uh, and probably some other people do as well. But um, could you could you name and describe the Bible story that still makes you scratch your head the most, and uh, what it is that's helped you to make sense of it? So. If I am still stretching my head about it, then I haven't made sense of it, right? Right so enough. Yeah. Thing, really. Um, one story that I did scratch my head about a long time is the Tower of Babel. And I have come to understand that primarily by thinking about what we know about ancient Babylon, because the word Babel is just the word Babylon. And the only two places in the Bible that ever gets translated as Babel is in Genesis 10 and 11 to sound like the word Babel. You know, you're babbling, right? Because their language is confused. So that one I've kind of solved, but the biggest problem for me is the God's command to exterminate Canaanites. Mm. Not even the narrative of that in Joshua, but the command to do that in Deuteronomy has really bothered me, and I don't really have a solution to that. Yeah, no, the I think that's uh, anyone who who devotes their life to Old Testament has to, you know, reckon with that with that problem at some point, don't they? So. The good thing is, you know, we've had so many different people writing on that in recent years, haven't we? So it's uh, that's great anyway. Anyway, today we're talking about your upcoming book, um, Abraham's Silence. Could you briefly describe, um, just for the listeners, what happens in this episode of the Bible that you're focusing on and um, some of the problems that the narrative raises um, for those of us who have a high view of Scripture? So the, the, the story of... What Christians have called the sacrifice of Isaac and Jews call the akedah or the binding of Isaac um, is really the second half of my book. And so I focus on that. And then the first half helps me see what the problems are. So this, in, in the story, of course, God tells Abraham to offer his son Isaac as a burnt offering. And the problem is for me twofold. The first problem is how can God tell me to kill someone else as a sign of devotion? Um, it's usually interpretation say that Abraham is sacrificing something very important to himself, but that's another person. Um, I have no right to sacrifice another person as proof of my devotion. So that's the first ethical problem. And the second problem is, and this is where the first half of my book focuses, it focuses on the, the power of prayer in the Old Testament, lament prayer, intercessory prayer, that God wants us to articulate our challenge to God and God will hear us. So why is Abraham silent? And so the title of my book is Abraham Silence. Why doesn't Abraham intercede for his own son and pray to God and say, you can't do this, it's not right. What's going on there? So that to me, those are the two problems, the ethical problem of sacrificing another person and the problem of why is he just close his mouth and say nothing? Mm. Okay, yeah. So um, what are some of the, the traditional ways of interpreting this story and um, perhaps explain why you find them to be lacking? Well, the, the way that I learned, and this is the popular church interpretation, is that it is kind of a, the story is a basically a symbolic story to say that nothing in your life ought to take priority over God. So you should be willing to give up anything for God, which I think is a true point, but um, that doesn't mean I should be able to kill my son for God. So I, I remember one time I was speaking on this topic and a young pastor in the audience said to me afterwards, I'm going home, I'm going to put my son to bed, and I'm going to tell him, I will never kill you if God tells me to do it. <laughs> That's what he got from that. Um, the secondary piece that is more implicit that we learn in church is when 
God, when you're going through difficult times, and Abraham clearly was going through difficulty, he struggled with, I have to kill my own son. When you go through difficult times, just accept it as God's will and don't complain. So the silence sometimes becomes a paradigm for how we should act. That's not the primary way I learned it, but that's the implication. If even Abraham, the faithful servant of God, didn't question this, how can you question any trouble in your own life? Now, that's a popular interpretation. The more nuanced interpretation that comes through Judaism and in some forms of more academic biblical studies is that this story is the foundation story of the temple which is thought to be founded on Mount Moriah. And so what we're learning here is the proper attitude to have when you're offering sacrifices in the temple. It should not just be an external thing. It should be a true dedication to God. And when the temple was destroyed, Jewish tradition began to say, well, this story now is a paradigm of what prayer is like when you pray and commit yourself to God wholeheartedly. The trouble with all these interpretations is that they abstract from the very real issue of so, but that, what about killing somebody to show your devotion? They just leave that out as if that's just a symbolic element of the story. And to me, that's a fundamental problem. Yeah, if you ever watch, you know, a atheist, uh, a vocal atheist debating a Christian, that's actually quite frequently, you know, a, a question that they'll bring up. Well, would you do what Abraham did, you know? It, it seems to be a very right. prominent objection. So obviously you're tackling it head on. So... What is the, the fresh interpretation that you propose um, for this particular story? You want me to give away the, the book now? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'll give you the core idea. So since the, the whole argument of the book is that God desires a vigorous dialogue partner, God encourages Job and Moses and many others, and Abraham in chapter 18 of Genesis, to articulate their doubts to God, their questions to God, their challenges to God. This is what God wants. So given that background in the rest of the Bible, and I actually trace some of it in the New Testament as well, though I don't do very much of the New Testament in that book. Uh, this leads me to think maybe what God wants from Abraham is a direct challenge. Because in chapter 18, see, everybody could com compare chapter 18 and 22 of Genesis. Chapter 18, God says, should I hide from Abraham, my servant, what I'm about to do? Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah has come to me, and I'm going down to investigate. And he tells Abraham that. Abraham says, you can't destroy them if there are 50 righteous people there. And God says, okay. He says, well, okay, Ooh, sorry about saying that. Well, let me try again. You can't destroy them if there are 45 righteous. God says, no, I won't. And he brings it down to 10. He said, my last offer, you can't destroy them if there are 10 righteous. And God says, I won't. And then Abraham walks away. And God goes and rescues Lot and his family. This is what Abraham was concerned about, but they're not as many as 10. So Abraham hasn't actually, I mean, what Abraham should have said was, will you rescue Lot and his family or not destroy the city for the sake of the few people who are living there who are righteous? But he stopped at 10. So he didn't learn how, how merciful God was. But God was initiating the opening for Abraham to pray. So I view chapter 22 as God saying, all right, let's give him another chance. I'm not going to, it's not going to be about his nephew Lot, it'll be about his own son Isaac. And I won't be the one destroying the city with, with his relatives in it. I'm going to ask him to kill his own son. If anything would cause him to say to me, that's not right. May the God of the whole earth do what is right, which is what he said in Genesis 18. And I would say, right, I'm not going to do it. You got it. You understand. The test was a test of, do you understand my character? 
not a test of your, dis your obedience, but a test of discernment of character. But Abraham doesn't. In silence, he goes to kill his son. And so I have three chapters explaining in quite detail the history of interpretation, what's wrong with it, what we can learn from it, and then close reading of the text. And I try to show that the structure of the book of Genesis leads us, if we are careful readers, to say God's not testing Abraham for unquestioning obedience. God's testing him for discernment of his moral character, which Abraham doesn't learn, which has negative effects upon his family, including upon Isaac. Mm. And I show, I show that in close textual reading of the passage and its context. It's a very interesting narrative approach to the problem you have. Um, I suppose the first um, objection that would uh, that would pop into my mind when I hear that would be, what about when God says um, after, you know, after the whole uh, thing, he says, now I know that you fear God, that you have not withheld your son. So that would seem like at, at least at, at first glance to mean that God does want this. Um, right. So the, the, there are two speeches from the angel of the Lord, angel of Yahweh, that come. Yeah. And the, these speeches are thought to be the validation of Abraham's obedience and faith. And I go through all the details of it and show you can actually read all of it differently if you're open to it. So, of course, okay. once your mind is made up about something, it's hard to hear another interpretation. But if you're open, so I first give an argument for why it's the discernment of God's character is the main issue. Then I go to the angel speeches. All right, let's take... You're, now I know you fear God. Okay, it literally says in the Hebrew, now I know you're a God-fearer. Okay, the, the other, other time that expression, God-fearer, is used is that the Lord says to the accuser in the beginning of Job, have you seen my servant Job? There's no one who's a God-fearer like him. By the end of Job, Job is a vocal protester, and God basically comforts him about his protest, though corrects him about his theology. And Job is comforted at the end. That's a better translation than I repent. It's I am comforted when you go to the Hebrew. So I have a, two chapters on Job and show that that's the, that's the thing. And then later on in the book of Genesis, so you have Abraham's son, Isaac, Isaac's son, Jacob. Jacob is making a covenant with his uncle Laban, and he swears an oath by the God of my father, Abraham, and by the fear of Isaac. Hmm. That's the name by which he learned of the God of Isaac, the fear and I think God-fearer there does not mean to be in awe of God in a positive sense. It means he was scared of God. Now, let me go a little further. The, the, the angel says, now I know that you're a God-fearer because you've not withheld your son, your only one, from me. The beginning of the story said, take your son, your only one, whom you love, Isaac. When the angel repeats that, he leaves out whom you love. In the two angel speeches, he leaves out whom you love. Because if you loved your son, you wouldn't have tried to sacrifice him. So you've committed him. You're committed to God. You have. You fear God. You want to do what God. This is one positive thing I could say. You want to do what God says to do. But you, you've not withheld your son. But you clearly don't love him. I don't think that commitment to God and love of your family ought to be in conflict, at, at a principal level. There's more um, in what the angel speeches say that I could go to to show. Um, that they're actually critical, but I'll start with that since that was your question there. Yeah, yeah, and that will—I uh, think that will whet the listener's appetite to to get your book anyway. And um, that it's a very, very interesting novel approach you're suggesting. The next question I would ask is: This story is also referred to in the New Testament, um, 
and it's in, uh, I believe, uh, Hebrews 11 is the main one. And the author seems to praise um, the faithfulness of Abraham. Is this a, is this a creative re- rereading of the Abraham story? Or do you think the author has something to say which is complementary uh, to your thesis? That's an interesting question. Um, by the time you get to the New Testament, the Old Testament has been received in Judaism through a series of traditions. So there's these lenses. You know, we sometimes hear dare to be a Daniel or something like that. You hold up people as moral examples, right? Um, that was not found in the text anywhere. So there becomes a pattern that you hold up particular individuals as positive or negative examples. And Abraham is held up as a shining example. And it's not based on a careful reading of the text. It's based on the tradition and history of the text, how it's received. So what Hebrews is doing, and there are a couple of passages in, in, in Paul, Paul's letters and the book of James as well that hold up Abraham positively. And none of these are doing an exegesis of the text. They're not reading the text carefully. They're accepting a traditional Jewish interpretation. Now, the doctrine of resurrection, right, which is what Hebrews says, that Abraham trusted God so much he believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead, right? The doctrine of resurrection doesn't go back to the book of Genesis. It's a very late doctrine in the history of Judaism. But you know, in the Jewish tradition, there is a statement um, in, in Jewish oral tradition that says, anyone who says the doctrine of resurrection is not found in Genesis or in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, let him be accursed. But it does not actually found there. You have to, you, you can see the beginnings of trust that God could do whatever he wants to do and say, well, God could bring Abraham back, um, Isaac from the dead. It's not explicit in the text. So it is a kind of a creative rereading, but it's not innovative with the writer of Hebrews. It's part of the Jewish tradition. And I am interested not in reading backwards, the title of a famous book by a New Testament scholar recently, from the New Testament to the Old, so that the New Testament now becomes the lens through which we read the Old. I want to read the Old on its own terms and read forwards to understand how through the traditions changing over time, we get to the New Testament. Mm. I'm more interested in that. So I will accept, okay, James wants to affirm the traditional view at his time and the book of Hebrews and Paul that Abraham is a model. Um, You can't get that from the text. You get it from literature between the Old Testament and the New. Now, I, I wanted to put an appendix in my book and look at all these passages in the New Testament, but there was a limit for the page numbers. So I'm going to be writing either a short article or a blog post on this topic specifically um, coming up in the year ahead. I'm going to explore this because it's an important question that you ask. I don't want to just brush it off. I want to talk about it more. Yeah, yeah and... Um... I suppose what you're saying would also make sense of like, for example, I think it's in first Peter where he's, he talks about Lot as a, as a, I think a preacher of righteousness or something like that. And no, is it Noah? I, I, I think I, it's, it says something about Lot being a righteous man or something to that effect. So yeah, no, that is actually drawing on the story via apocalyptic literature in Judaism that uses a Sodom and Gomorrah story as a metaphor for when God comes to judge the world in the final day. And it yeah. like the stone from heaven. But when he says God doesn't want any of the righteous to perish, that's a reference to Lot in the family. Because righteous can just mean innocent in the Hebrew. Yeah. So yeah. He may not have been um, guilty of, of Sodom's crimes. But yeah, um, I'm not sure that it's, 
by itself it stands. You have to understand how we get from the Sodom story to the New Testament via apocalyptic literature. Yeah, okay. Moving on to uh, another part of the book, which is obviously you connect Job uh, to the figure of Abraham a lot. And we've touched on this briefly, but um, what what is Job's relationship to Abraham? And is this a connection theologians have made in the past? So it's not a connection that theologians have made as much as biblical scholars and primarily Jewish biblical scholars who are reading the Hebrew. So they're seeing more connections that are at a textual level. Um, there are many connections. Both Job and Abraham are called um, God-fearers. The phrase that Job uses, dust and ashes, I traditionally, I repent in dust and ashes. He actually says, I'm comforted about dust and ashes. The only other place in the Bible dust and ashes occurs is on Abraham's lips, hmm. where Abraham says, although I'm just dust and ashes, I'm going to ask you one more time, Lord, will you save the city for so many righteous? Um, there are many other intertextual connections. They're both kind of patriarchs, ancient people set in the same time frame. One is a Jew, one is a Gentile. Um, they're, 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 at the end of the story, God tells Job's friends, that Job will pray for you and I will hear his prayer. God tells Abimelech, the king, my, my servant Abraham will pray for you and I will hear his prayer. There are many other connections. Uh, I think I, I traced about seven or eight different connections thematically and sometimes very textually between the two. And the Jewish interpretive tradition from before the New Testament has linked them from the book of Jubilees, which is an intertestamental book, um, which has Satan come to God and say, you see your servant Abraham? Test him the same way you test Job and we'll see what happens. So they link the story. Yes, and I've one, heard of that before. Yeah. Yeah, and one biblical scholar um, says the tradition is so strong of linking Abraham and Job. It's really one character. Let's call him Jobraham. <laughs> he wrote an article on the character of Jobraham. So this has been a long tradition that I've just picked up. I was noticing my own connections, then found that I was touching the tip of an iceberg that many other people have, have addressed. However, most of the tradition says that since Abraham is the model, we'll apply that to the reading of the book of Job. I want to do the other way around. I want to read the book of Job and then apply it to Abraham and say, maybe Abraham is deficient and Job is making up the deficiency. Here is a God-fearer using the same language that Abraham uses, but who protests and challenges his suffering. And God says to, to, to Job's friends, y'all have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Job, Job's right speech was his lament and protest. Hmm. He's talking back to God. And so I have a chapter on the lament Psalms as talking back to God, a chapter on Abraham when he talks back to God. And every time he challenges God, God says, okay, I'll do what you say. And then, and in two chapters on Job, then I get to the Abraham story per se. So I, 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 my basic thesis is how you read the Bible affects your, your life, your stance in life. Are you going to be a passive person who just goes through life accepting whatever comes your way? Or will you take it to God in prayer and learn from that relationship how to have sustenance in times of difficulty? Because you know the creator of the universe is willing to hear your prayer and answer you. Mm. Getting on to lament, which you've touched on there. So the blurb of your book states, um, this book provides a fresh interpretation of Genesis 22, and we've been talking about that, and it reinforces the church's resurgent interest in lament as an appropriate response to God. 
So um, when you say resurgent interest, um, are you alluding to uh, how the past year has impacted the way churchgoers interact with God? Or do you think lament was a resurgent interest even before the pandemic uh, hit? So I didn't actually write that. That's Mark <laughs> who wrote that. And they wrote it pretty much at the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah. So I'm not sure they were thinking explicitly of that. Um, what I say in my book, and I have a, my conclusion really addresses this question, is that resurgent is that lament is there in the Bible. It begins to die out in the like second or third century AD, both in Judaism and Christianity, um, as cultured pagans start to challenge um, the view of God in the Old Testament or in the Hebrew Bible for Jews, Christians start to read everything typologically and spiritualize it and allegorize it to get out of the problem, right? So really, it's not about killing his son. It's about, you know, the symbol of what we need to do to be dedicated to God and just a typological thing. The Jews, they come up with this argument that how dare you challenge God? No one can speak to God and challenge God. And throughout the Middle Ages, the dominant view in Christianity has been Nobody should challenge God. So lament dies out. Um, in Judaism, there is a minority stream, or it's maybe it's pretty strong, but it's not a majority stream that says challenge to God is important, but it seems to be the majority point of view says nobody can speak back to God. It's not until you have modern times, and when modern times could start with the Renaissance and Enlightenment, but especially the 20th century. But before that, it began that lament becomes important again. The 20th century has seen a lot of work on laments in the Old Testament. Lament Psalms, but also Abraham's lament in Genesis 18, the book of Job, the book of Lamentations. This has become very important. It's been studied. It's been connected to life, to spiritual life, and the vigorous nature of our spirituality. So I'm thinking of the resurgence in the 20th and now the 21st century, something mm. bigger than just the pandemic. But you know that two of my favorite scholars have written books on the pandemic, short books, both of which have emphasized how important lament is. One is Walter Brueggemann, an Old Testament scholar. The other is Tom Wright, a New Testament scholar. They both said the same thing about the pandemic and lament. You've talked a little bit about there about the um, these um, these traditions that would basically um, say, you know, you can't talk back to God. How how dare you do that? So how would they have understood the like the books of Lamentations and, you know, the Psalms, which feature obviously very strong, you know, cries against against yes. God, you know? Um, so how, how do you think they would have understood them? The, the issue with, with Jewish interpretation is um, there is an idea that every passage in the Bible connects to every other passage in the Bible out of context. You can just take things and link them. Of course, people in the church do that too, but this is the way Jewish Midrash has worked. And so they will connect texts without looking at context very much. Mm. Um, so they, they might pick up something from Job. There's, there's, this is actually what you find in one of the Midrashim. Um, there's a statement Job makes with, about God. He's actually complaining, right, to his friends. Who can challenge him? He is the rock. Everything he does is right. Like, give me a break, man. And they take that and say, see, He's the rock. Everything he says is right. No one can challenge him. Therefore, you can't challenge him, which is the opposite point Joe was making. They, they have they're interesting ways to do that with almost any passage in the Bible. Uh, to say, and so, you know, Job today is very valued by contemporary readers. Here is a person who does not accept the blaming of the victim. He wants to challenge it. It wasn't his fault that he suffered. But if you go back to 
um, the Middle Ages and even the Reformation time, both Christians or Jews say, yeah, you know, Job didn't deserve his suffering. But his challenge to God was not appropriate. And that is why he has to repent at the end. So you, you have this reading. There's ways to read almost every text. Now, with the Psalms, you probably just select the verses you want out of the Psalms and ignore the rest. And in Lamentations, you can go to that chapter that basically starts to praise God because there is really hope after suffering and leave out all the rest of the book. Most Christians do that too. We write, you know, praise songs about that, that verse. You know, new every morning, great is his faithfulness. That's what the Lamentations, but that's, that's in the context of chapters of, you know, tearing out your soul and, and rending it and showing it to God. And then you say, I've got hope now that he's going to answer me. Mm. But we like to take things out of context. Um, that's what goes on in, in the history of interpretation. Yeah. Could you just briefly explain for the audience what um, what Midrash is? Because you alluded to that. Yes. Um, Midrash is a mode of interpretation that does not try and do a close reading to see what the text said in its original context. It picks up on ideas in the text to make what I'd call homiletical or sermonic implications, applications to our life today. And many Jewish scholars will say, don't criticize Midrash because it doesn't carefully read the text or do what we call exegesis. Midrash is a way to contemporize the text, to link it to our experience so it can seem very fanciful at times. There are some Midrashim that you just read, it, where did they get that from? But then you have to always ask, why are they saying that? Oh, no, I understand. It's not just, it's not good interpretation, but I understand where they're saying that. Mm. And uh, do you think at all, do, do you think that the New Testament authors, did they employ Midrash when they were looking at Old Testament stories? Um, that's, a, that's a great question. So you can, so Midrash can, range from the very fanciful to what is basically a good close reading with ex with application. It can be quite close. Um, I think that by and large, when a New Testament writer quotes an Old Testament um, text or alludes to it, they're not doing fanciful midrash usually. They're actually often reading in context. I've done quite a lot of work on the first two chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, which quote many Old Testament texts. And I've looked at all the Old Testament texts and read the context and then and Matthew knows the context very well, and that helps you understand why he's using the text. Now, there are times when you get more something more midrashic. For example, the prologue of the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and by him all things were made. That's a midrash on Genesis chapter 1. But it's going beyond. It's not just exegeting the text. It's going beyond it and applying it to Jesus and his preexistence. And there is a form of Jewish Midrash that takes a text from the Torah, the first five books of Moses, and Genesis 1 is clearly from that, and has a second text, a subtext, from elsewhere in the Bible. And it seems to me the subtext that John is drawing on is the wisdom literature. Because wisdom was with God at the beginning, and through wisdom, God created the world. And in fact, wisdom literature outside of the Bible has wisdom coming down and becoming incarnate in the world. So there is a Jewish scholar at Harvard called Daniel Boyarin who has said, there is nothing in the prologue of John that was not being taught by some Jew in the first century, not even the incarnation of the Logos. Mm. Yeah. So and that's, that's, it's midrash, but it's not that fanciful. Yeah. And, it, and, it's, and it's beautiful theology. You know, it's, even if it's, even if it's uh, culturally situated, it's still, it's yeah. really, really beautiful. 
Um, I'd, I'd like to ask, some theologians draw sort of a, a kind of typological relationship between the binding of Isaac uh, that we've been discussing and the crucifixion. Maybe you can tell me if that does show up in the New Testament anywhere, but um, does this comparison, do, do you think that there's something to it? Or um, what would your thoughts be on that? That's a fascinating question. This is something else that we're going to put in my book, but no space. I'm going to write an article on this also. Um, it's, there are a few allusions to, so the, the analogy would be between Isaac and Jesus, right? Is that one sacrifice? Now, in the actual story, in Genesis 22, Isaac does not voluntarily sacrifice himself, but in Jewish tradition, Isaac is the symbol of the great martyr, the one who sacrifices himself. So there are midrash that say, you know, Father, bind me tightly that I may not move and cause the sacrifice to be defiled. And he wants to do that himself. There's actually one of the midrash called Genesis Rabbah, the great Genesis, which is a, a midrash on Genesis, that says Isaac carried the wood as one carries the wood of the cross to crucifixion. That's not in Christian tradition. That's in Jewish tradition. That is fascinating. It becomes the, the paradigm of the martyrdom. And um, there are many, many books written on this subject. In fact, Isaac as the paradigm of martyrdom is more important to many Jews in the history of interpretation than Abraham's faith or obedience is. So the question is, is Jesus being compared to Isaac? I think, and I've tried to study this, but it's a difficult thing to study. It seems to me the Christian idea that Jesus is the sacrificial victim who willingly goes as Isaac does is dependent upon Jews saying that. They're responding, no, no, it's not Isaac, it's Jesus who is the real one. Because the first time you get that explicitly is in Irenaeus and Tertullian in the second and third centuries and then following. Then it becomes a really important theme and you can quote lots of church fathers on this. In the New Testament itself, the most you can find is things like God gave his only son. So, you know, and, and only son, um, monogenes, that's a Greek, uh, which translates the word yachid, which is the word in the Hebrew, um, which means unique or only one. It doesn't necessarily mean son, it just means unique or only one. However, the, the Greek Septuagint does not use monogenes, uses a different word entirely. Uses uses the word for beloved. Um, so it's not, there is a little bit of a kind of analogy um, alluded to in a few New Testament texts. I don't see it as an important typology that is being propounded until post-biblical post times. Then it becomes important. I'd like to move on to just to talk about the, um, the tradition of lament uh, a bit more. In the uh, in the Bible, so um, what uh, what relevance does the book of Habakkuk um, have for the question of talking back to God? Um, do you discuss this prophet in your book? I do mention Habakkuk at one particular point because Habakkuk makes an interesting uh, point. Now, Habakkuk and Jeremiah say very similar things, and I'm going to mix up which one says which. But what, what they both say basically, Lord, you're always righteous in everything you do, but I got a bone to pick with you. Why are you doing this? So they affirm what is true of God theologically, and then they say, but my experience doesn't match that, so I'm going to challenge you about it. And I use Habakkuk to illustrate that point. Habakkuk is quite willing to challenge God um, on various, various things about suffering for Israel and so forth. Um, Habakkuk is not used primarily as an example of one of the prophets who intercedes. He challenges God. But many I have very rare prophets who intercede on behalf of Israel, and they bring judgment to Israel. God is going to judge you for your sin. And they talk to God, 
Now, God, back off, give them time to repent, leave them alone for a while. But I have preached on Habakkuk in the last couple of years, and I preached on his challenge to God and how we ought to basically follow that. Because to me, the, the important existential issue is when you challenge God about what you perceive to be wrong in your own life or in the world, it sensitizes you to what is wrong. And you become attuned morally to not accept the world the way it is, but to want to make a difference in the world. When you learn silence, unquestioning silence as the proper mode, then you become passive about changing anything in the world or in your life. And to me, that's the problem. So Habakkuk is really important for helping us to not be satisfied with the status quo. Yeah, it's it's, it's interesting. I I recently had to, um, to write this ghost writing thing on uh, stoicism. And it's it's almost as though, as I was writing it, I was thinking, man, this this seems a little bit <laughs> a little bit different than what you get in in uh, in these uh, Old Testament texts, isn't yeah. it? It's it's almost the opposite, isn't it? And I was trained originally in philosophy, did my master's degree in philosophy, and then was shifting over into biblical studies. And one of the reasons is I was studying the problem of evil, and all the solutions to the problem of evil about among philosophers, including Christians, going back to Clement of Alexandria, I think, was the first Christian to actually address it quite early, before Augustine did. And what they all do is they end up saying that God has so ordered the world that what you think is evil is not really evil. It's necessary for God to produce the best of all possible worlds. And it leaves you with a kind of a stoic attitude that it's sometimes called the aesthetic view. Everything, the darkness and the colors are required for the whole picture which is wonderful to say when you're a philosopher, but think about a person who's actually suffering. Your suffering is required because God wants the world to be a certain way, and it's part of the pattern. And I was um, working on an article on this topic when I heard a Christian philosopher say, um, we give this basic argument called the greater good defense, that, that every suffering in the world comes across, is required for some greater good God has. And a Jewish guy sitting in front of me in the question time said, I have a question for you, Professor. Um, are you saying that all the suffering of the Holocaust was required that God would bring a greater good to the world? And that this professor hemmed and hawed for a little bit and said, yes. He said, screw you, and he got up and walked out. And I was sitting there, I thought, I think he's right. That's the biblical approach. Rather than trying to explain it, protest it. Yeah, that, that's that's interesting, you know, and I think I think a lot of us um, definitely do, do um, kind of grew up thinking that you know the stoic approach is the is is the right one. Um, but um, um, just uh, going back, what what do you think of the book of Lamentations? Um, is that is that also an, a neglected resource for the church? Do you think? I, I think so too. Um, I've not done a lot of work myself on lamentation, but I've got friends who do work on the book. So and it's fascinating to read what they say about the book. I mean, the book is a you know cry of protest about the suffering of Jerusalem and its destruction. And you have different voices in the book, and then you have the voice of the author responding to the voices in the book. And most of the book uh, brings no resolution to the question of suffering. Um, the Book of Lamentations is interesting. It's different from Job in this way that the, the voices in the book both protest and, and protest the suffering of Jerusalem and articulate grief but also accept responsibility that Jerusalem has sinned and brought this upon themselves. So even the fact that you believe that you have done something wrong does not prevent you 
from challenging God over the extent of the suffering. And this, this relates to a, um, a comment in one of the minor prophets. And I, it's either Zephaniah or Zechariah, I can never remember which one. But God says, I was only a little angry, but the Babylonians made it worse. In other words, God was not going to bring as harsh a judgment as he had planned. He had nudged the Babylonians to bring judgment. What they did, well, that's not really what I wanted them to do. So therefore, you can challenge God. Even if your suffering is a result of what you have done in some way, it doesn't prevent you from challenging God. So the Book of Lamentations is helpful for that point alone, if nothing else. Uh, one thing, I, I think uh, one of the elephants in the room is the, is kind of the question of, are there some inappropriate ways in which we we can talk back to God. So, you know, Paul's statement in Romans 9, but but who are, who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Right. So surely even if it's if it's okay to have a rant with God, there still have to be boundaries of some sort in place. I, I don't think the boundaries have to do with what you say. I think it has to do with the attitude in which you pray. So if you're praying because you really want an answer, that's one thing. If you're praying because you are basically telling God, screw it, I don't want anything to do with you. Um, you know, that's a marginal kind of prayer. And maybe that's what's appropriate. If, if you're challenging God to say, you're just wrong and I don't care anymore. I think that's inappropriate. Nevertheless, there are many lament songs out there in popular culture. They're not biblical, right? They're, they're, they're popular songs that challenge God. And, and, you know, there's a famous one by ecstasy called Dear God, which ends by, I don't believe in you. It's a powerful challenge about suffering in the world that God has allowed or, or caused and ends by saying, I don't believe in you. By the time you get to the end of the song, you realize that the, the singer wants to believe in God so much. So even these boundary kinds of songs, um, or I think uh, there's a Dave Matthews song called Bartender, where God is addressed as the bartender. And he says, basically, I need a drink of the wine you gave Jesus that raised him from the grave. But my life is in chaos, but I need that drink. Um, that's, the whole song is a prayer. Those are lament songs. I don't think they're beyond the boundary of what's appropriate. It's when you really don't want an answer. Mm. And you're sticking it to God. I think that's what's inappropriate. Yeah. And I, and I suppose the person who Paul is responding to in Romans 9, definitely, if Paul is characterizing him faithfully, he definitely seems to be more on the impudent side, I guess, yeah, that yeah. you're describing rather than a kind of genuine, well, why is God doing that? Yeah. There is a movie kind of old now called The Apostle that Robert Duval starred in as a Pentecostal preacher. And there's a scene in which he's upstairs in his house and his mother is on the front lawn talking to the people who came to visit him. And you hear him up there stomping around and shouting. And she says, don't worry, he just had a little word with Jesus. And that's lament. So our conversation today has um, touched quite a bit on the question of, you know, suffering and how we address God um, during these periods. Um, for someone who may be listening and is, you know, perhaps going through such a period, um, what general advice would you give them for um, making sense of their ordeal theologically? I think it's generally dangerous to give general advice. <laughs> <laughs> it's more important to sit with them and, and be there for them. But based on my experience, in, in times when I discover the lament psalms. It's important, I think, to be honest with God about what you're going through and not to expect a quick and easy answer. But what I've learned from praying lament is that I've learned, I've, dis I've discerned the character of God as a God who wants me to be honest with him. 
That's a very merciful, gracious God who's not threatened by my challenges. So that's, that's, that's really what's led to my questioning Abraham's silence, that Abraham did not learn that. He didn't learn how merciful God could be. Um, it's hard to pray your own lament sometimes if you're not used to that. So what you do, I think, is go through the Psalms and read some of them and, 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 and pray what language you can pray that, that evokes something in you. For me, it was the most depressing Psalm of all, Psalm 88. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Reawakened my faith. Yeah. If I, someone could pray such a dark psalm to God, and it's in the Bible as a model for prayer, then I said, this is a different God than I thought, because I had stopped praying, and I hadn't realized it till I prayed Psalm 88. What I realized looking back was the reason I wasn't praying was I didn't believe God was good. And so why would you bother pray to a God who you couldn't trust anymore? But once I could pray that prayer, I can trust this God now. And I began praying more and more and then began praying for other people as well again. My life started to come back together. But I'd been in a place of silence and darkness for um, maybe six months. It's interesting because um, I kind of had a similar like eureka moment when I read Psalm 88 for the first time. I think it was um, in our uh, family worship time, you know, we have a time where we sing psalms and and I just opened up the opened up, you know, the Psalter um because dad wanted to sing. And I was like, wait, this Sam is in the Bible. You know, it's just it's just so, so strange <laughs> to some extent. The time when I when I when I found the Sam, I was actually taking a course on the Sam. That's when it was introduced to me. Mm. And um the project I did for the course was I developed a lament grief service for a young woman who had just died, part of my school. She was a you know, student in her twenties, she died. Um, and we did a lament, and one of the people in the seminary who I was studying was a, an organist and musician and wrote many hymns, and she put this sound, the plain song. It was so powerful. I still have a recording of it if you ever want it. That's awesome, yeah. It's been great to, to speak to you and um, hear your um, opinion, and uh, I'll, I'll obviously um, I'll link your, um, your book in the description. When does it, uh, when does it come out? October, I've told October, okay, but people can pre-order it now anyway. So uh, yeah, so they're, they're, I don't know how it works um, depending on parts of the world, but so it's from Baker Academic, and um, Baker has two different websites. On one of the websites, they're giving a thirty percent pre-order discount. On the other one, they're not. But I don't know if you can get that in the, you know, in Ireland. I don't know how that works, <laughs> but I can give you the links, and you can decide what you want to put up there. Yeah, yeah. Well. Um, so thanks anyway for uh, for taking the time to to speak. Uh, it's been it's been great to hear your uh, your thoughts and keep up keep up what you're doing anyway. It's a it's a great service for the church and all that. So, thank you, Patrick. It's been really nice talking to you.